Turn with me again this morning to the book of Colossians, where we left off. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, looking today at verses 11 uh, through 14. Page 954 in, uh, in your Bibles, if you're using the ones we have. We, we step back into the middle of a sentence uh, where we left off, because Paul has been reporting to the church of Colossae, first century, reporting to them how he prays for them. If you hear someone pray for you, you know what they care about in you. Because we all pray about what we care about. It's pretty clear that he cared about their spiritual progress. And so I'd like us to kind of jump in at the beginning of verse 10, which is review, but kind of the start of a second major prayer request that Paul was praying. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. That's, that's the big one. I want you to live worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Uh, I don't know if anybody still diagrams sentences in, uh, in school. We did that in high school. We did it actually in seminary as well. But sometimes diagramming a sentence kind of gets to the main point and, and you kind of figure out exactly what he's saying. So a little bit of a summary here. The main thing he's talking about in this passage is about pleasing Christ. And he's telling us, I think by example, how to pray. Pray about the right stuff. He prays that they would live worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's, that's the main thing. If we are the answer to that prayer, if we are living to, to, to be worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, then these three things will be a part of our life. Number one, you will bear fruit and grow in your knowledge of God. That's something we discussed last time when we were in this passage. Uh, if you remember, uh, we were uh, celebrating the completion of the Discipleship Center, and uh, it was so fitting to, to connect really why we built an additional building with this passage. It's so that we bear fruit. It's so that for, for, for years and generations, if, if the Lord tarries, we can be serving one another and having an impact that goes even beyond our lifetime. We want to bear fruit, fruit. Bearing means we impact somebody else, they impact somebody else, and that outlives us. So we pray that you'd live worthy and please him so that you might bear fruit. Today we look at these two additional benefits or results of living a life to please Christ so that you are strengthened with his power, did you catch that one, and so that you joyfully give thanks. So the, that was last time, these two are this time, but the key foundational issue is that we would live worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And if that is our focus, then we will be strengthened with his power. We can grow in giving joyful thanks, and that can characterize our life. So the foundational issue, as we're thinking this morning about strength, as we're thinking this morning about joyful thanks, as, as the foundational issue that we have to continually go back to is in verse 10, where it says, are you seeking 
to please Him. Because these are things that happen when we live to please Him. Many times I'm, I'm afraid we picture as Christians God is there to help fix us and our life. And we can feel very uh, noble that I really want him to fix me you know, on the inside and I want him to fix my character. But even then our focus can be on fixing ourselves for ourselves instead of fixing what God wants to address for him. We can still be all about us eat, because, yeah, boy, I really need to deal with this, need to deal with this. And we're all consumed with ourselves instead of, instead of this refocusing that, that Paul is calling us to. Are we doing this to please Christ? It changes everything. What does it mean to live to please Christ? Does living to please Christ in every way, that's a little daunting, mean that somehow we must live at some level of spiritual perfection? No, there's a process in which God is sanctifying us, which basically means that there's a process of spiritual maturity that God is working in our lives. We don't expect a, a two-year-old to take his or her own bath. We don't expect a ten-year-old to pay for their own food. But we expect a two-year-old or a ten-year-old to take certain responsibilities appropriate for that time. And then we patiently wait for other things to mature. Don't you think God does that with us and he knows exactly what it is that he wants us to address in his plan for us right now? And so that spiritual maturity, the the pleasing of Christ, what would bring a smile to him is if we would address what is right before us right now. And so, so don't live with this sense that you have to somehow please everybody else's expectation, but rather that we are pleasing Christ. And that is so relieving. It is such, there is such freedom when we transfer our mindset to say, no, I want to live to please Christ. Because if we focus on the expectations of others, we will be in discouragement because everybody's got a different standard. Imagine keeping all of those. No, what does Christ have for us right now? While I was recuperating, I uh, read Tim Keller's little book, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If uh, some of you ladies recognize that, uh, I know that uh, uh, Seth and Anya have asked you to read that for the women's discipleship uh, training class. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And Paul po- uh, he, um, Tim Keller points out, focusing on the passage of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, I don't care if I'm judged by you. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. The idea is this, we cannot live to please others, we cannot even live to please ourselves, we must live to please Christ. And he points out the contrast to the world's view. Here's where the world's uh, shelf of self-help books is the same. The world also says you shouldn't live to please others. We all kind of get that's a problem, right? But what the world says is, instead of pleasing others, you should please yourself. That'll end up in despair as well. It's not pleasing others. It's not pleasing self. It changes our life when we live to please him. That's who we live to please. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. And then flowing from that, bearing fruit... And now this second one, being strengthened 
Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. It's interesting, he kind of piles up the words for strong. Being strengthened with power, all power, according to his glorious might. Three terms for power. How powerful is God? We know that is one of his infinite traits, starting with creation, galaxies. He called them into being the great lakes we enjoy. The pituitary system I've been learning about. Raising Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead. Jesus himself being raised from the dead. There is infinite power. And, And what Paul is praying is that God's power, his glorious might, will somehow be infused, imparted to us to address whatever it is God is addressing. So while we realize the importance of pleasing Christ, we realize our inadequacy of doing that. He says, here's the resource, that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And those are the things that will address the stubborn traits that are messing up life or relationships. Those are the things that will address the things that you have known about yourself and that you long to see transformed. But we cannot, keep going back to verse 10, we we cannot expect God's transforming power until we pray for a transformed purpose. So keep reminding yourself, what is my purpose for what I pray? Is it that I would please Christ or please me? And then, Paul, knowing that God can give us that power, answers the question of why. Why would God give us this transforming power? He says, so that you may have great endurance and patience. This power of God is to give us endurance and patience, not necessarily happy, healthy, wealthy, and impressive, but to have endurance and patience. Uh, the word endurance, a couple of Greek words paired together, to bear, to be under, to bear under, or to have a, a fortitude or a spiritual strength for the pressures of our life. Because God doesn't want us to fail. God doesn't want us to check out. God doesn't want us to be a spiritual casualty a few years down the road, there's, there's enough of those in the Christian family, unfortunately. He says, no, I pray that you would have my strength so that you could endure patiently. Uh, it really means putting up with what God brings you through to transform you. Uh, I've mentioned before, uh, Coach Balzer, our high school basketball coach, had an impact on my life and memories. But uh, he was known for beginning basketball practice each season without basketballs. But conditioning. Two weeks of power training drills and almost no basketballs. Basically just pain. Because he understood that you could have all the basketball skills and, and strategies, but if you run out of gas in the middle of the third quarter, you won't win games. God wants us to be spiritually conditioned, and that will require 
many hard things. So he says you need to have a transformed purpose. What is winning? Winning is pleasing Christ. So if your purpose is to please Christ, here's the promise. God will bring you through that which will require you to depend upon his power to deal with blank. His power will be needed for you to deal with that hard thing or things. Closely connected to the word endurance is the word patience. Patience is describing the attitude of our endurance. Patience is really describing an attitude of acceptance of what we endure. When you think of endurance, uh, you realize we can endure something bitterly too. Eeyore comes to mind if you're acquainted with the Winnie the Pooh characters. Uh, he played the martyr, he complained a lot, he certainly endured, but he endured, you could say, resentfully. To endure patiently is supernatural. To endure patiently. patiently patient is the same word here as what, what Paul used when he wrote to the Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. We often think of love, joy, and peace. What's number four? Patience. Those are not contradictory. Patience isn't, isn't, isn't living in a glum misery. It goes along with love, joy, and peace. And patiently accepting what is many times, it's patiently accepting God's timing. And that's our struggle. So often it's our, it's our, our children don't mature fast enough. Our finances don't catch up soon enough. We don't recover from surgeries or diseases fast enough. And then there's the whole issue of patience with people. That's the hardest one. And sometime, probably in this Christmas season, you will be stressed with impatience towards someone. You probably even know who it might be by this time. I don't know. But if you seek to please that person, you will always struggle, but you don't need to. You need to please Christ by how you treat that person. You see how that just flips a little switch and you think differently about it? I don't need to please this person. I need to please Christ by how I treat this person and, 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 and apply necessary truth and grace as needed. So God wants to first transform that which we want to accomplish. Do I want to please Christ? And then he infuses his power and we can, so that we can endure things patiently. And when we do, we find that we are pleasing Christ by imitating Christ. We are never more like Christ than when we endure patiently. I was, brought, I was thinking of uh, Hebrews uh, 12 this week. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, if you know the context of Hebrews 12, he's referring to the people in that list of faith from chapter 11. Old Testament uh, well-known names, heroes we could say of the faith, who are set apart and in that, put in this a unique list because they endured and waited for some things that actually were never fulfilled in their lifetime. Since we have Others who are examples, witnesses of this type of a lifestyle, 
Let us run with, and here's the highlighted term of this passage, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You know, think about your own situation. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because otherwise, we always will grow weary and lose heart. But as we refocus our life on pleasing Christ and fixing our eyes on Christ, we realize we're not the first believer to live with the need for patient endurance, and we follow our leader, our author, the perfecter of our faith, enduring patiently. So about that hard thing, what will it look like to endure that patiently. Let me just give you a couple of samples of what it might look like. Number one, here's, I'll, I'll give you five. It's God's strength when I choose to rest and accept what I cannot change. That is supernatural. To rest and accept the things I cannot change. Number two, it's God's strength when I choose to wait when my sin nature says act. We're often... Uh, desperately in need to address, fix, change, manipulate something. And so it's actually God's strength, uh, strength when I have restraint. That doesn't mean we never act because the flip side of that is this. It's God's strength when I choose to act when my sin nature says fear. So other times we can be paralyzed by fear and so we don't address something that we need to address. Boy, how are you going to know the difference? Praying for his wisdom. Or as the first prayer request of verses uh, 9, of praying for the knowledge of his, his will. Pray for that which would be important to God and begin to think like God thinks. Number four, it's God's strength when I choose to trust God when I tend to resent him. It is such a, a dangerous, subtle shift in our mind when we say, no, I'm trusting God, and we shift to resenting that which he's allowed in our life. Are we constantly bringing, it'll take his strength to constantly return to trust. And then number five, it's God's strength when I choose to rejoice thankfully for spiritual blessings in spite of physical circumstances because it is usually or mostly physical or you could say just simply circumstances that are dragging us down. And that's where he goes next with the joyfully giving thanks. Here's the list again. Are we fo- if we're focused on pleasing Christ, then our priority will be spiritual blessings. And we will recalibrate our mind to enjoy spiritual blessings in spite of physical circumstances. And then eventually that begins to touch our emotions even. And that's where he goes next. If we're being strengthened, verse 11, let's not be surprised then in verse 12 that we will be joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Eventually, our, even our emotions are affected and, and that's why I said, don't, don't be weary, don't lose heart, Hebrews 12. Someone enduring with God's strength is likely to be someone rejoicing thankfully in spite of circumstances. 
it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a process, isn't it? It doesn't mean we're going to always feel happy, but it's going to be an understanding of what God is accomplishing, and that begins to give joy. When you know a Christian who is habitually giving thanks joyfully, and maybe you've got a couple of special faces that come to mind, you don't assume they didn't have problems. You don't assume that their road has been easy. But you can begin to assume that they are the ones who have been thinking and fixing their eyes on Jesus and living to please him. And eventually, that's why their emotions began to reflect the reality of where they focused. Joyfully giving thanks to whom and for what? To the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Every time Paul has a little prepositional phrase or something, it always means something. There's a reason God inspired it. Let's think it through. Inheritance. It's a beautiful illustration of grace when you think of it because you are not, you do not earn an inheritance. You're born into it. And we are born again into our inheritance. That's where, that's where religion goes wrong from the very beginning, religion in quotes, is it is assumed that religion is about us qualifying ourselves. Qualifying ourselves for earthly blessings, qualifying ourselves for eternal life, and it, it, it's all entirely wrong. And we, we can find that right in this term inheritance because you do not earn an inheritance. The Father qualified you, passive. You, you are the one who got qualified by somebody else. He qualified you. He made you sufficient. He gave you full credentials. How? Having rescued you. Verse 13. Rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You were transferred from a kingdom called a dominion of darkness to a kingdom called the kingdom of light. Is this, is this uh, kingdom of light and the inheritance describing heaven? The privilege of being in heaven when we die? Or is it describing the status that we have right now? If you feel the tension between those, you don't need to because I'm convinced it's both. Because you receive, you and I receive the status as members of his kingdom, or other places it refers to being a child of God, we receive that the moment we put our faith in Christ. And then eventually one of the benefits is eternal life in heaven. So you don't need to choose. It is now and it is not yet. It's both. And when you think of it, just as the benefits of being an heir to the spiritual blessings is now as well as later, it's because we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness where the impact of being in that dominion was also now and forever. The forever would be an eternity of judgment in hell. The immediate would be that the rest of the world of unbelievers is living in the dominion of darkness. That is, they are in a real sense powerless to overcome their sinful natures. And so there is a, 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 a rescue from the now and a rescue from the forever. The trouble is when we as believers 
who have the benefits of the now strength of God and the benefits of the eternal life in heaven are living under the dominion of sin. That doesn't need to be a part of us anymore to be dominated in, under the bondages of sin. This week I was thinking of uh, Romans chapter 6 where Paul addresses this, how we have been rescued from bondage to sin. Romans 6.6, 6, first of all, describing what God did. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now we, we know that we still sin and we will have a sin nature and we will sin until we are in our eternal state. But Christ died and we have been identified with his death so that sinful bondages can be broken. Christ accomplished that for us, but a little later in Romans 6 he says this is our responsibility. In the same way, count or consider yourselves. It's a, it's a mental but spiritual step where we, re, where we review what's true in verse 6. Consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus and therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its evil desires. If you read the whole passage of Romans 6, you begin to get this picture that while he has provided the resources to make us, uh, to give us the capacity to break every bondage of sin, we must daily grow in our maturity, two-year-old, ten-year-old, whatever it is, wherever God has us right now, whatever he's addressing, what he puts on our plate, and says, you can apply this, but it's going to take a recognition mentally, spiritually, that I have been identified with Christ and I can be dead to that sin. It forces us to ask this question, what sin still holds us in its power? May or may not be, you know, one of the biggies, the deadly sins or whatever people call them. It can be just some stubborn trait that we know has been a problem. Either it's a problem because of what it's done in our our world, our relationships, our job, or whatever. It could be something that we know it's been a problem because it plagues us internally. But whatever it is, do we realize that we can consider ourselves dead to that sin and begin to watch God work in that character trait? Have you focused on your powerlessness or the power of Christ who broke Satan's domination? Because as long as we focus on our failures and our, and our powerlessness, we will remain in this cycle of discouragement. But it's as we fix our eyes on Jesus, it's as we transform our purpose, we live not to please ourselves, but to please Christ. And then the power of God begins to work at that, might direct us to, to certain people who can help us, might direct us to certain practices that need to change in our life. But it all will go back to what is my overall goal is to please him. And eventually, as we focus on the rich spiritual blessings, we find ourselves grateful, joyfully giving thanks because he qualified us. We seek joy in all the wrong places. I think we know that. If we seek joy in our financial situation, things will go like this or like that. If we seek joy in the next fun thing we have planned, you know, there's the expectation, there's the experience, there's the letdown. 
What if we instead sought joy on some daily basis by fixing our eyes on Jesus, on thinking about our spiritual blessings? That's why I think it's important to wake up in the morning and, 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 and take time to look at God's Word because God's Word will assure us of a spiritual reality that we were not thinking of. It refocuses our mind and we begin to, to think of what he has done. And, and as we are assured of our spiritual riches, it doesn't make the problems go away, but we can take a deep breath and tackle what God has for us next. How is this all possible? Well, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son. He loves, verse 14 he takes us right to the cross, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you changed kingdoms. How? Through the cross. You, if you're a believer in Christ, changed kingdoms. Everyone starts in the dominion of darkness. Uh, sometimes I think it, I, I hear Christians, or at least people say, I've always been a Christian. I've always believed in Christ. Nah, not really. We all start out spiritually lost. And we must be spiritually awakened and found. We need to understand the gospel. We don't start life as believers. We start out as sinners. Uh, we are excited to be expecting three new grandchildren the next Five months. We just did this two months, two years ago, and now we've got to go through it all again. Every one of those little kids will be born sinners. Very cute ones, but sinners. We don't, we don't automatically transfer. We, we can't tr do it for them. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul reminds Timothy, he says, How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Just lays it out that our responsibility is, as parents is to teach our children the Scriptures because the Scriptures are able to make them wise so that they can have salvation through what? Faith. In Jesus Christ. And so there will be a moment, there will be a decision every child needs to make. At that moment of faith, you transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the Son that He loves. I love that description of the, the kingdom of the Son He loves. It tells you what the kingdom of God, the family of God, the, whichever metaphor you use, is like it is immersed and bathed in love. Because the Father's love for the Son is the leadership of the kingdom, the leadership of the family, the leadership of the body of Christ. And that's why it is so important that we, as the body of Christ, have an atmosphere of grace and love because that's what God, the Father, and His love for the Son is all about. But there is a moment where we must put our faith in Jesus Christ. You either have eternal salvation and this inheritance qualified by the Father, or you don't. Every child, every teen, your uncle, your dad, 
the strange guy in the next cubicle, the friendly cashier, everybody you cross paths with, if you, do you realize they're either subject to the domain of darkness or they're part of the kingdom of light? The press, most pressing and first pressing question is, do you know if you're part of the kingdom of light? Because first, verse 15 tells us the only way the transfer takes place. In whom we have redemption, referring to Christ on the cross. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption speaks of that which Christ did about our sin. Forgiveness is what the benefit that we receive. In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption refers to the payment of a price. Sin has a price. There is a penalty, a judgment by the holy God for all sin. The price must be paid. The incredible truth of scripture that is so often neglected by uh, religion of any kind, including buildings with crosses, what is ignored is that salvation, this inheritance, these spiritual privileges, the entire package is a free gift. That's what's so hard to, to accept and comprehend for our world because religion says you must earn and pay for anything. Nothing's free. If you see a commercial that says free, you go, yeah, right, what's your catch? And yet this season you'll probably gather maybe around a tree or somewhere with some family or friends and there'll be a gift exchange. And as you receive a gift, you don't pay for it. Yet inherently you know someone did. If it's free to you, someone paid for it. Salvation is a gift. The free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. Someone paid for it. That's what he's saying. We have redemption because Christ paid for it. Thus, because he paid for it, that's why we can have forgiveness of sins. Yet it's all dependent upon a decision that we make whether that amazing gift is received by us. Let me review for many, or maybe it's new for some, what it takes, how you can be rescued from the domain of darkness. Just some basic verses describing the bad news and the good news. In any situation, whether it's the mechanic or the doctor or somebody who's repairing something at your house, you've got to get a diagnosis. What is wrong? <laughs> have we identified the problem? The bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's interesting to contrast that with what we read about how the Father has qualified us to be inheritors of the kingdom of light. The fact is nobody is able to qualify themselves. All have sinned and fall short of qualifying, fall short of God's standard of perfection. 
That undercuts every idea of religion which says you have to qualify yourself, earn your way in to God's favor. Romans 6.23 says the bad news gets worse because the wages, meaning the penalty of sin, is death. And it refers to eternal death, which is hell. It's a lost condition. And so the penalty of sin is an eternal judgment. So the bad news is about us. We are sinners, everyone, failing to qualify, and we deserve God's judgment. If we got what we deserve, it would be eternal judgment. And that's where the good news becomes so good. Because it depends upon that which Christ did. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what the cross was about. This is how we can be rescued. Number one, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When he says that he died for us, it means he died instead of us. He died in our place. It's, it's common in conversation where I've talked with people who, who have a, a religious background and they would say, and they have said to me, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. But I've asked this second question, so what are you trusting in to have eternal life? Well, I think you need to be a good person, you need to go to church, you need... Wait a minute, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins, Okay. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Well, you need to be a good person. Do we see the conflict there? Why did Christ need to die for our sins if we're depending on ourselves to have eternal life? The fact is, he died in place of us, and the only way we can have eternal life is if we believe in him, trust in what he did to have eternal life. And so John 3.16 and, and almost a hundred places, other places in the New Testament tell us there is one basic decision that each person must make. Let's find it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That is the cross. That is Romans 5.8. Where he, he, Christ died for us. God so loved the world, fill in your name, that he gave his one and only son, that's Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So to believe in Christ means not to believe that he did die, not to believe that he existed, not to believe that religion's a good thing. To believe in Christ means to believe in, to put your faith, your trust, your reliance in what he did on the cross. He died for my sin, he rose again. And so the real question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Because you're either trusting in what Christ did or you're trusting in what you do. And that is the decision that you must make to be transferred from the dominion of darkness to be brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom, through whom, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, what are you trusting in for eternal life? I invite you. This Christmas season is an ideal time to understand a gift. Christ paid for your sin. And you can have eternal life, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, if you 
put your trust in him. You receive salvation as a gift, trusting in Christ and Christ alone, not Christ plus baptism, Christ plus good works, Christ plus your church or this church or any church, but Christ alone. And then the promise is, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Or you can put it this way, we're rescued from judgment. A few verses later, whoever believes in him, Christ, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There's, there's only two choices. Or John 5:24. truly, this is Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are freed from condemnation if we put our faith in Christ alone. And along with that comes this whole benefit package where we can live a life that pleases Him in every way, bearing fruit, being strengthened, and joyfully giving thanks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a tremendous uh, plan by which you would uh, have seen all mankind in a sinful condition, in bondage to Satan and his power, and to bring your own son, the son you love, into the world to become a man. As we remember and celebrate at Christmas, to live a perfect life, but more importantly, to die the only death that could pay for our sin and then rise again as we remember each Easter resurrection season, providing the full payment and proof of our salvation, that if we would simply and only put our faith in you alone, we will have eternal life. Thank you for this incredible gift. I pray for any who uh, hear these words that has uh, never personally placed their faith in you alone, who are trusting in anything else or anything additional than the full sufficient payment of your son, that they would realize the, the completeness, the sufficiency of the gift, and would put their faith, their trust in you alone today. In Jesus' name, amen.